Welcome to CSG Politics. Before I get started on today's politics show, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th, and Blake and Moisee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple of blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, when you, uh, within this era of uh, all these restrictions coming back, um, you are still able to go in for very limited outdoor dining uh, or consuming of of wine in the dairy blocks in the dairy block but it's uh it's it's going to be more difficult and the best way you can help out Blanchard family wines is not driving down to in and out and waiting in line for 12 hours how about you support a local business and go to Blanchard family wines and get yourself some really kick-ass wine uh, my favorite is the 2017 Cabernet it uh, it's just really hits the spot but they got a whole bunch of other wines including a partnership with the Western Slope Winery named uh, Storm Cellars for Riesling um, and uh, but they also have Pinot which is their specialty but you know basically you go to bfwdenver.com and and look at where all their selections and all of them are good uh, you can also book a, a uh, what's called a virtual wine tasting, which is they send you, um, you pay for the slot, you, they send you a bunch of uh, samples, they send you things to pair with, and then you just do this virtual thing. It's extremely popular. So if you're gonna do that, you better go get it now. And it, sometimes it takes your, your couple months out from your, from your virtual wine tasting. So I would take advantage of that now at bfwdenver.com. They're on Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines. Once again, they're located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. When you go in, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining us on the latest CSG Politics. Once again, I am your host, Jeff Morton, and also joining us is our co-host, uh, Miss, uh, coming to us all the way from not New Mexico, uh, my friend who is hopefully on the way up from having battled the disease of our or virus of our times. It is now Pat Darren. Hello, Mr. Garen. Good day, sir. Feeling good. Feeling good. Battling back. Okay, good so uh, uh, the last time we uh, did CSG politics, you admit you you talked about uh, your battle with uh, COVID. Um, if people didn't mm -hmm. listen to that, that last one, it was about uh, Biden's victory over Donald Trump in the presidential election. Um, is there anything you can update uh, our our loyal CSG politics uh, followers about? Well, I mean, I start from the same thing I said before, you know, it is something to take seriously. It's affected everyone differently. I tested positive after feeling sick. And uh, then, you know, in the intervening days when I first started feeling sick, when I got a test, I was around, you know, my family, small handful of people, no one else tested positive. So I feel good about that. Um, isolation, 10 days of isolation uh, is no fun. And um you know, it's, it's scary because there's this thing that you hear about in the news all the time that, you know, started on <clears throat> far off lands and spread like the contagion and all this. And then all of a sudden it finds its way into your body. And, you know, you look at statistics of like, well, there's been hundreds of thousands of people that have died. You know, what if I die? Or, oh, I don't want to have to go to a hospital. Those are full and people are just going there to die. So anyway, there's a lot of anxiety that comes along with it. Um, when I first got diagnosed, I almost diagnosed feel like I suffered from shock a little bit right. um, for the first day or so. Um, and then, you know, it was physically grueling and I felt just as bad as I ever have. But, um, you know, now I'm about, I think, three weeks, a little more than three weeks from my original. I basically got diagnosed on uh, election day. Um, <clears throat> so two and a half plus weeks, I guess. Um, and uh, I feel pretty good. There's some lingering things that'll like come from time to time. Um, I've never had a sickness quite like this. And so a lot of the symptoms are new, which makes right. them a little more sort of frightening. Um, and also, you know, I, I probably 
when I hear people describe that they had mild symptoms, I think that would accurately describe what I had. I never had a fever um, or anything like that, but I definitely would get, you know, cold and hot and I would um, be really uncomfortable. And, you know, now um, every once in a while, I just kind of like will feel really fatigued and such, which I never have had that experience either of an illness that, that kind of has that. So some lingering effects there. And then, you know, as we go into this Thanksgiving holiday, um, you know, it's, I take, again, I take seriously the recommendations, you know, I had intentions to travel and to, uh, you know, try to be responsible in, uh, in a smallish type group, but uh, decided that, you know, the best thing that, that I can do for my family, myself, my community is uh, to, you know, just stay home and know that, you know, the holidays will be different this year and uh, we'll make up for it here soon because uh, I think a lot of this vaccine news is coming out. It's really positive. And, uh, mm -hmm. and for a long, long time, uh, we've been looking for hope. We've been looking for like, you know, what, what's it going to be that's going to turn this corner here? And, you know, this is all <clears throat> totally separate from politics, which we'll be talking about, um, you know, for the rest of the show. But just as just, you know, a, a human, a citizen in the United States here, um, I feel like, um, you know, we're looking at opportunity here in the first part of the, this next year to start getting the vaccine out to the people that need it the most and right. then um, ramping up from there. And then, you know, maybe we'll be able to uh, go see some concerts and, uh, you know, watch some uh, some live sports or or whatever, um, you know, coming in into the, maybe the spring or something next year. So really hopeful in that regard and, and uh, encourage everyone to do their part along the way. Well, what one of the more remarkable things about this is uh, if we, we listen to our uh, titular ex-president, soon to be, uh, you are now Superman. So, um, <laughs> I, I, yeah. how does it feel being Superman now? I mean, that's... <laughs> interesting because although all the science and everything says like after 10 days the virus can't replicate you can't you know give the give anyone a, you know if, if it's still in you or whatever you can still maybe test positive but not be contagious um it's still i have like a heightened awareness you know where i'm like oh I should i go in and get coffee at this place you know i've had the coronavirus recently i don't want to be irresponsible right um but then on the other hand uh it does enter your mind that you know you're like well you know supposedly it's like the chicken pox you get it one time and you're good to go for a long time yeah. um you know but it is a novel disease. It's new. We don't know much about it. I mean, we don't know that it lasts any more. <laughs> immunity lasts any more than eight months or so, because if you got it on the first day that it, that it was discovered, we're only eight or 10 months into that time frame anyway. So, yeah, right. And, um, and it's, and it's, uh, we were all, I mean, like, look, all of us who do these various uh, shows on, <clears throat> on CSG, uh, be it Gen X movie um, music or the CSG politics, we, we're all friends with Pat. So obviously this was, uh, everyone was like, when everyone's, anyone, someone gets uh, close to you gets it. I mean, it's, it's like, you, you're very, very heightenedly aware of it. And I became even more aware because, you know, my brother's got leukemia and he had to have an appointment at St. Luke's last week. And I'm like, uh, the back of my mind, I'm like, is he safe going to the hospital? I think that that's seriously crossed my mind because things sure. are fucking out of control right now. And um, then you're like, you realize like, no, they, they, they contact trace and they, they take measures in a blood cancer <laughs> wing of a hospital more than you would in average society. So your chances at, at that point are very low but it still crosses your mind and uh, like people still need to take this seriously. And I get the feeling and I maybe we'll, we'll, we'll kind of like, this will be our last little bit on this and then we'll move to what we want to talk about. But um, it's crossed your mind that maybe I'd like the extremely positive news of the vaccines coming out, maybe relaxed some people probably a little too much. Well, it's a combination of factors. I mean, there's like now there's that hope, which sometimes people lean into hope before it becomes reality. Um, you know, people are exhausted from this. I mean, when we think back to talking about your, with your friends about it or whomever, you know, back in March, there was a lot of like, oh, you know, I remember, I mean, just a specific example, like hearing, uh, you know, a discussion like, oh, they, they're going to need to include some like, you know, election related um, uh, relief in the original, this original coronavirus bill. And I'm like, election? I'm like, it's freaking November. It's March. You know, this is going to be long gone by then. Right. Uh, not only is it not long gone, it's much worse as far as its spread. Um, 
and so it's easy to become complacent. Um, it's easy to just say, you know what, screw it. I've gone through all this time and haven't gotten it. I don't know anyone who's gotten it. So I'm going to go to grandma's house and, yeah. you know, and wherever. Um, and so it's, it's a really difficult thing. And the lesson from this, hopefully, as we say into politics and public policy, is that um, depoliticizing things that can be depoliticized it takes both sides agreeing to do that, right. but it's critical when we need to do something. And I mean, if you try to apply the response to uh, the coronavirus pandemic to any other sort of like difficult time in our past, like, you know, Pearl Harbor bombing or something like that. If all of a sudden it was, you know, half the people were like, you know, screw that. Um, you know, it's against our freedoms to have to sacrifice, you know, and ration supplies and, you know, this is ridiculous and it's made up and it's all fake and all this, you know, then the American century would have never existed. So, um, next time, you know, let's let the doctors take the lead. Let's put our faith in the scientists and let's step out of the way on both sides. And then let's model appropriate behavior so that we can move through these processes like this. And I think that that is really what the lasting legacy of the political consequences, the social consequences of this pandemic will be. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll, uh, we'll reevaluate the role of leadership in, uh, those, in the areas that do not need to be, um, political. Well, I think you kind of seg this into something that you and I, and, and for people who don't know, the Pat and I will talk about what we want to talk about. And sometimes, you know, it, it, it evolves over time. But um, I think this kind of segs into something that Chris Hayes had mentioned, something about um, how when you are, are have and it's not you can't say 73 74 million people felt the same way there are people out there who will vote just r right they see an r next to a name and they will just vote for it they don't have they don't necessarily share the core values of the person they're voting for but they see it they vote for it it's low information voters these are the people who just say vote republican i'm sure there's democrats on the same side who do the same thing uh they don't aren't curious as to what's going on they're living their lives they don't pay attention um, but there is a segment of Trump voters and there's a segment of uh, a, a hardened segment, I would say, that are so intransigent and all about owning, owning the libs, basically, is what it is, that you can't it, – it interferes with public health. And right now we have a public health crisis. And you made a good point. What if this happened in World War II, right? there was an immense amount of sacrifice that had to happen in World War II. Immense. You had to have a country, in, entire country, mobilize in order to make what happened with World War II happen. And it advanced us through the next uh, 50 years, right? Imagine this happening then. And uh, the, the response probably would have been a lot better, probably better than the 1918 pandemic, uh, which was very similar to this one, actually, because the second wave just, just, just got people. But now, I, I, you would think that people have more information and therefore would be open to it. But it seems like political and uh, reveling in ignorance and trans intransigence uh, has really hampered our ability for to for greater good in public health. Well, I mean, when you start building like your political base on the like lowest interest. Uh, sort of communities where their entire political philosophy is just like, you know, F that B or whatever, you know, I mean, you, you, you mentioned that people that like they just see an R and they vote for it. Um, you know, I think that that happens certainly an awful lot because um, part of the last 15 years has been demonizing, you know, liberals and yeah. uh, the lefties and drinking liberal tears and all this, you know, and you look at the other side, I mean, Hillary Clinton lost the election in 2016 because Democrats didn't vote for her. You know, there's numerous people that voted for Joe Biden that didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. Right. And it wasn't just that they necessarily voted for Trump, but they, they didn't vote at all. You know, and you talk about it in, the, in those blue wall states, um, that's, you know, really made the difference. And so, you know, it's almost like the, the two opposite things are happening where like you have to pass this like purity test on the Democratic side in order to like get full support of the um, of the party across the right. country, right. where on the Republican side, all you have to do is like be sufficiently contemptuous of the, of the lefties of the... <laughs> 
You know, I mean, just think back to that debate when um, Donald Trump said to uh, Joe Biden, you know, are you for the Green New Deal? Or, you know, and he's like, no, I'm for the Biden plan. You know, I, I, I'm my party. And, he's, and Trump's like triumphantly, well, you lost the left as if, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Republican candidate gets to like dictate, you know, which what support the, the Democratic nominee is going to have in an election and but they think that way and and they're correct sometimes you know um so it's uh it's a wild thing the other thing on this i like to point out is and i I think i might have even said this on on one of our previous shows but the the engagement of voters is is so much more um you know as as a percentage of eligible voters that actually show up to vote i think we had like almost 90% here in our state of Colorado of people that receive ballots, return them. And you receive a ballot if you're a registered voter. Um, you, you start getting a, a diminishing return there at a certain point. Um, once you have people like you described, Jeff, they're like, you know, low um, information voters. They don't pay attention necessarily to politics. They're more into it for the personality side, almost like sports. And once you start having a disproportionate number of those people voting and then in a number of places, you start getting wonky results. You know, it's sort right. of like, you know, it, it's sort of like the Jill Stein and Gary Johnson voters of 2016. It's like, you know, these are people that just decided I don't like either candidate. And so I'm going to vote for these third party people that don't have a single chance of winning, but there's an effect beyond that. You know, it siphons votes off of the other mainstream candidates. So maybe if you dropped your voter participation by eight or 10 points, you, what you would lose out on is these people that are sort of subverting results for their own reasons. Um, and maybe not intentionally, but that ends up a lot of times being the net result. And then they're, um, you know, then these races are so close that those margins actually make big differences. So, you know, hopefully in the future, you know, we have elections that are dynamic, that are about one policy versus another policy, one philosophy right. versus another philosophy. Personality is still going to play a role. People are still going to be hyper partisans and all those sorts of things. But the way you get the middle or the like, the, the people that aren't on Twitter every day or aren't reading the news every day, the way you get them to participate in a way that allows them to look into thing, voting for their own self-interest, when the temperatures turn down, it's more policy driven, you end up getting better results. Um, so hopefully there- that's on the horizon. <laughs> There was a book that came out about 2006 uh, called uh, What's the Matter with Kansas? And it was a very, and this was during the Bush era where partisanship wasn't necessarily as severe. It was still there, but it wasn't necessarily as severe as it is now. Um, And we all think everything at the current moment is the most severe, right? Because you're living in the moment. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. I can't remember this, you know, that sort of thing. And then you think back and I was 16 in 1994 and uh, Newt Gingrich was shutting down the government because he wanted to own Bill Clinton. And (laughs) I was at 95 and uh, I was 17. So it was like, it was like that went on back then. But here's the difference, I guess, is that, um, in, in, in people really need to read what's the matter with Kansas and people have called it like pseudo pseudo intellectual kind of like analysis of, of ignorant politics. And really what it is, my specialty. Yes. But really what it is, is a, uh, like someone trying to figure out why people in his hometown, tended to be single issue voters is really if you want to boil it down right and uh there i have my own theory is that there is a there's two kinds of ignorance there's benign ignorance and then there is malevolent ignorance uh benign ignorance is just like you're you're just not out there trying to figure it out but you're open to things because you just haven't been explained uh things haven't been explained to you you haven't gathered all the information uh, then there's malevolent igno- ignorance, which is willful ignorance, and uh, because you don't you don't like the person telling you the information, right? And I think we all have a little bit of that in us, but uh, it seems to have permeated through massive amounts of politics, particularly in Middle America. No offense to Middle America, um, to where it's like I am this way because I don't like you telling me. Um, information that is contrary to what I either believe or have been told to believe. And it's a, it, it's a, I, it permeates so much of the politics today that it's kind of 
created this lowest common denominator that everyone is trying to appeal to that will never get appealed to. And it, and it's, and it, it's kind of created, at least in my mind, this kind of messed up nature of politics where you are tr constantly running against a brick wall trying to appeal to people who you will never appeal to because they don't want to be right and i think that that really is where we're at right now in 2020 well and it's all uh it's all done by design you know the uh you when you find a, an issue that that rallies a large swath of people. Um, and then there's never any resolution to that issue over, you know, administrations and generations. And, you know, it's just constantly like I'm on this side and the other side is like, you know, inhuman because they think differently. Um, that's how you cement long-term power. And that's how you start, you know, get letting people justify their um, election related decisions, even though they might not be in their own self-interest, you know, okay. just drive on, um, on I-70 from, uh, you know, Eastern Colorado to, you know, through Missouri and, and probably all the way through the rest of the Midwest there. And there are people that are like landowners and such that have massive, like self-made, obviously like self-funded billboards that they put up about, abortion and how it stops a beating heart and how a baby that looks like this is can be murdered and like all these sorts of things it's a perfect um issue because you, when you if you're going to decide that you're um that abortion is the the thing you're going to hang signs up on your yard on a major american interstate your responses to anyone that pushes back are so like you know, taken in a vacuum, they're so powerful. It's like, oh, so you believe in murder? So you hate babies? So you're a baby killer? Mm -hmm. And there's a huge swath of people that that's their issue. That's why they're Republicans. And that's why, you know, the Congress has never decided to like take up abortion rights or anti-abortion legislation and, and, and pass it and put it on the desk of a president and settle this issue once and for all, right. you know, it's all reliant on like a 1970s court decision that, you know, they kind of peripherally try to challenge from time to time, but even in the formally conservative leaning court, it never really got addressed. And, and so for Dozens of years, for decades, you had a political party that was able to say, we need to get elected because then we can put the judges on that'll put a stop to this baby murder, you know? Yeah. And, you know, not to get into the whole argument of abortion and whatnot, but right. it's just, it's, it's another example that's just so sensationalized that it makes it so easy to defend an extreme view and make that your single issue vote, um, which... I could go on for hours about single issue voters and how much they enrage me, but um, you know, there, there's a healthy dose of people out there that that's what's important to them to the point where you even have like, you know, semi fringe members of like the, the Catholic church, you know, speaking up about how like Joe Biden shouldn't be given communion because he's, you know, in um, he's, he's not in favor of banning abortion. Meanwhile, you know, the, the, the opposite is that they're like rushing people to death row right now to get them executed before this administration um, ends in January, you know, but that isn't brought, brought up in these discussions. So there's a lot of hypocrisy because they're not, we're not speaking the same language. We don't have a common language anymore in our politics where, you know, you can make your case about government spending and I can make my case about why it's okay to have a deficit. And you can make your case about how, you know, public assistance makes people lazy. And I can make the case about when people are born into poverty, giving them opportunities, what gets them out of poverty and saving money in the long run, like all that. That's a positive, constructive discussion. But th um, those things aren't being discussed in presidential debates or in the Senate debates or, or even in the coffee shops when we were allowed to go to them and have conversations with our fellow citizens. Now, we don't talk about it. We have our hardened rules. We sit back. We watch our self-affirming television stations. We customize our Twitter feeds to be exactly what we think is true. And there's a lot of appeal. It's always easy to just push back on the other guy being an asshole, you know. And, you know, Democrats have are in danger of doing this um, as Trump, you know, hopefully leaves office and we move forward into a new administration is just to continue to focus on, you know, all those assholes from the Trump era. And I get it. Like, I want them all to pay for their crimes or whatever as well. But, you know, the, the then it's at the sacrifice of actually doing anything because the Democrats are the party that wants to pass laws, that wants to, you know, 
pass a, a stimulus bill to like move the economy forward where Republicans are happy not doing that because they don't pay a political price for it. Even though it could help people, those people aren't moved by their self-interest to be like, you know what? My business is failing. My state is a disaster. I'm going to vote for Joe Biden, the first Democrat I, you know, I've ever even considered voting because the way things are going now are bad for me. Those okay. voters aren't very prevalent out there. No. And then, you know, we end up with these whack elections that like, you know, look like they come down to the wire. But in reality, there's, you know, they're basically decisive when you look at the vote margins. But we're, we're kind of stuck in that space. And I don't see any, any way out. Well, this was more of a blowout than coming up. Like, this was more of a decisive victory than Trump's victory, which was very narrow in three states and four states. Um, but moving to the kind of the theme that we're talking about here uh you and i both spent time uh you you grew up and i lived seven years of my life and what's where we met in uh the western slope of colorado grand junction and uh i'll never forget it after trump was elected i went out there in 2000 summer of 2017 and just to visit my my mom who still lives out there and one of the things that absolutely struck me at the time, and I, I hadn't really thought about it prior to then, <clears throat> was how angry everyone seemed to be. Um, it was very, there was just this, this biting, extreme anger at everything, right? And I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, it, 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 every, and, and then I went into a, a place that had Fox News on it. And then another joint had Fox News on it. And another one, and another one, and another one. And because they all, every place you go where a diner or anything like that has a TV. And now you're, you're looking at that thinking, okay, these guys are being fed, all, you know, liberals want to, you know, kill you and eat your babies. But there's, there was this like this, this intense anger. It wasn't even resentment. It was just anger. And I, and I did a vlog about it back when I did that sort of thing. And I couldn't understand it. And I still can't fully understand why there is a, a feeling like that back then. Like, uh, like it just in that location. Because it doesn't reflect anything on the side of the state that you and I live on currently where I grew up and you go there and it's completely different. It's almost like a separate reality and it's almost a political, uh, it's a political reality that is night and day as opposed to where we are right now. Well, I mean, that is nothing new. That is not a 2017 unique um, right. observation. That is how, that place, which we know well, and I extrapolated across the country to small and more isolated towns, that's that's their idea is that government doesn't work for them. You know, the things the government does, they don't look at as a contribution. Um, and they think they all, it's just like when you hear about, you know, East Coast bias or coastal elites, you know, this is where this, this thought comes from. It's like in sports, when you have like, you know, certain teams um, where you're just like, you didn't, you know, we don't get any respect, you know, or yeah. like nobody likes us, you know, yeah. it's like, there's, there's not an active of like disrespect happening to you. It's like the circumstances of your reality um, dictate kind of the level of, of attention that you might get from other places but it doesn't like necessarily follow that that's like intentional and and actually you know spiting you because of that and i think that that when you start taking politics personally so much it's really easy to get, go down the wrong path and when you look at these small towns and the same thing you know you drive through i70 to the west and go right. towards uh, the western slope there you know there's like full on there's people's property with like full on replica trains that say the trump train you know and all this and it's because they don't, you know, they don't feel like they're listened to um, by government and the the party that's most um, representative of government in these minds are the Democrats because, you know, they want to pass a health care bill or something like that. And you're like, what the hell? I have, you know, I don't need health care. I'm in a small shitty town and I go to, um, sorry, I'm in the small American town and I go into, um, oh, shitty. Yeah. you know, get my, <laughs> get my uh, prescriptions and I, and I take care of it that way and whatnot. You know, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And the, the, the Fox news thing and before it, and even, and which, 
is the reason Fox News, you know, decided to launch anyway, is the conservative talk radio thing. It's just that mentality that we're talking about here was made for having a media mouthpiece that continues to perpetrate it. You know, right. the other side is idiots. The other side is incompetent. The other side want to take things from you and give it to people that you don't like. You know, they want to take things from hardworking people and give them to lazy people. And you beat that drum enough and people are like, yeah, this is a freaking outrage, you know? And yeah. when you're out there driving on the highways and byways of rural America, you know, for your job or whatever, and you're, you've got the soundtrack of Rush Limbaugh on the background, of course you think the country is in the shitter. But you you never take the time to think like, what is the motivation for a person to talk about how shitty things are for so long through all kinds of administrations, through different control of the legislatures? Why are things always so bad? You know, eventually it's just like your philosophy is grievance politics and grievance politics drives you to feel the way that you do and reject certain things. And it's why like one example that I keep coming back to is I, I run into a lot of, um, of people that are, you know, self-described like evangelical Christians or they're very strong in their Christian faith or whatever. And they have this like undying support for Donald Trump. And it makes absolutely no sense to me because if you look at the two candidates that ran for president this year, you have one who's like demonstrably a devout religious person that goes to church regularly, that speaks of his faith, that is informed of, of their faith um, and uses it in a lot of their decision-making and in the way that they, they view the world. And that guy you reject. And then there's this other guy who basically is like, everything's about me. You know, I'm all about my own ego and the things that I want to get done. And if I need to burn some bridges along the way or torch some, um, some other humans, then I'll do so. But they, literally have you know very prominent faith leaders talking about how he was sent to that office by jesus christ himself or, or whatever and and it's baffling right. <laughs> and that has to come from that whack uh media ecosystem that just envelops people my I, I was looking at this and like how do you think and maybe in a greater sense uh we have missed the boat on how we communicate to people in, I mean, I can't even call Mesa County necessarily rural. There's 150, 160,000 people out there. Um, it is a city, but how do you communicate to people who at their core believe something that about you that isn't a reality, but they believe it so fervently that it, it becomes dogma. How, how do you communicate with that? And do you want to, is, is it, is it back to the brick wall analogy that I was, I was making to where it, you just eventually stop trying to, to communicate or at least get someone to see that you're not the devil sort of thing. Yeah. Yes. It, it's that. And it's all, you know, what I was saying about how, we've lost the common language because we've demonized the other side. And I think that, um, you know, both sides can take some responsibility for that. It takes two, two sides to go down that path. But right. the fact that like, I have a lot, we were talking earlier, you know, we have mutual friends that, um, that are on the other side of the political spectrum of us and we're great friends and we talk about all kinds of things, but we never talk about politics. We never have these kinds of discussions. Right. We never say like, why are you always watching Fox news and spouting their shit and making that think, making everyone think that, like, that's the truth, you know? Um, and so I don't know that there's like really a way back from that. I think what it, what is going to have to, what is going to happen, you know, going through the next generation is there's going to be the constant battle of demographics between the cities as they become increasingly diverse across the country um, and their population continues to grow and those cities will be you know largely voting for democrats and then you'll have rural america which is going to be losing a lot of the influence that they've been exerting certainly over the past 25 years um you know to those cities um and their their sort of seeding of that political power will um continue to inflame them and it will harden them in their stances and we'll probably end up with you know more extreme candidates um that appeal to them in future elections i would guess um you know but i i read something over the summer i think it was where that said like you know the conservatives are jealous of the the left's cultural power and influence and the left is jealous of the rights, political power and influence. And I think that's all demographic based. You know, it's like, I know a lot of people that used to love um, 
uh, somebody like, um, you know, Tom Hanks. And then he says something about, uh, you know, politics or Meryl Streep is an example that I know of, of where, you know, I know people that would tell me Meryl Streep was the greatest actress ever. And, you know, she was amazing. And then, you know, she goes up in the Oscars and makes a comment about, um, you know, take, not putting children in cages and like that. And people lose their freaking minds, these same people. And they never want to see a film with her again, you know? And so it's, they feel like their culture is being taken away from them and, and the agents of it are members of that culture, you know? I mean, imagine a world where you're on the right of American politics and you're looking for a commonality with uh, people in, in, in uh, Hollywood or in music. You know, it's like you've got yourself some John Boyd and some uh, uh, Ted Nugent and some Kid Rock. And that pretty much is it, you know. Um, and so then that's just another thing of resentment. It's like, OK, so we got Hollywood and all those bastard liberals that don't ever have to work for a real day in your life. And then you've got the media, which... You know, again, I could go on for days about how ridiculous it is to like discuss the media as some like monolithic, you know, lockstep organization that's out there. And the only counter to it is like this other form of media of Fox News and conservative talk radio. Um, And so these divisions are massive and they're just going to continue to erode. And eventually, you know, the demographic demographic uh, shift from the rural to the urban um, areas of influence is going to further exacerbate that problem and you're going to have completely out of the mainstream people elected to the congress from rural districts you're going to have states that don't have you know major urban hubs that are going to continue to send you know those same outliers to the senate and you're going to have you know a, a an electoral college map that looks similar to what it looked like in this election, you know, with uh, with a slow gradual trend um, in certain states to more blue um, and, and maybe making those elections a little more decisive. But then all that does is further sort of alienate, uh, you know, your, your rural voters or your, your voters that look to the city as like some sort of enemy. I mean, when I was growing up in uh, Western Colorado, they called, uh, you know, you heard the word term city folks or what's going on. I used to come back after I went away and lived on the East Coast and people would be like, well, how's life in the big city, you know? Um, or what's going on back East was like a, an expression you only hear in, the, in those worlds, you know? Or just say the word like California to a conservative and they talk about how it's like a dump and it's poorly managed and it's gonna, you know, it's all terrible and it's liberal assholes and all this. And it's like, California is like 40 million people. It's wildly diverse. They have the, you know, if they were its own country, they'd be like the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world. Where is this hatred, you know? And to say nothing of the fact that it's gorgeous, the weather's great, you know, I mean, there's a huge, you know, uh, sort of spread between like San Francisco and Northern California, all the way down to San Diego. And then, you know, in Eastern California, the farming communities and the rural communities. I mean, if anything, it's like a microcosm of America, Uh, but it's like rejected by a certain sort of political like uh, philosophy as, you know, the electist fever dream that should be discounted. Look at this. California used to be reliably red. Right. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. changed. Reagan, Nixon. Reagan and Nixon, two of the of the right's most popular and more more revered presidents are are from California. And I think that part has kind of it's gone away because more people have moved into California. It's just it's simple demographics like Colorado has exploded in population since about 1995. Right. And it is not the primarily rural state with the big city of Denver anymore. It is now the entire I-25 corridor is massive. Well, it's a massive population. I think there's six, six million people in Colorado and a good, oh, I don't know, 50 to 55% of them live just in the urban corridor here. And uh, it is, just the way things work. But a lot of the people who moved in were more conservative Californians, right? But just due to the nature of a more diverse and larger population moving in, it means you tend to vote a certain way. I don't want to pigeonhole everyone, obviously, but that tends to be the way things work just over time. Um, 
Uh, one of the great, and the, if you talk to anyone who's conservative, one of the great um, uh, kind of, uh, what do you say, the things that they're counter was the suburbs. And because in the 70s, there was something called white flight. And they, all, the, all, white pe- all these white people left the city and moved to the outlying suburbs. And they became more conservative. Well, that has moved back again to where now that the population has expanded out and it's not just cities that are densely populated, you have more, you know, I wouldn't say liberal, but more democratic leading, leaning uh, voters. And yet this, this last race where kind of Trump was constantly talking about um, um, they're taking over the suburbs, we're losing the suburbs. It's probably because he read something like, well, Democrats are voting more here, here, and here. And he's, that's, that's what he's doing. And he's trying to create another white flight. And it's just, it didn't work this year because he's contemptible and reprehensible and people were sick of him. But it is true that I think it is a common uh, like mind frame among conservatives that they, they who, they who say such things on the conservative side think they have lost the suburbs too. Um, and so maybe the kind of lessening of influence creates the kind of the desperation to get, it creates the extreme. Well, I think when you start talking about people in cities and suburbs, they feel like government has more of a role in their lives because they witness what happens. They have public transit, you know, they have massive sort of um, infrastructure projects or the need for them. Right. Um, and so you start at the very local level and your, and your mayors and your county commissioners and then your state legislators and your governors and those sorts of things. And you're pushing them to do these sorts of things. So like in our state, we have a governor, progressive uh, democratic governor, um, and he might say, you know, he's calling a special session of uh, the legislature for uh, coronavirus-related relief, which is right. going to be a difficult lift because you can't deficit spend in the state and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, <clears throat> it's, it, you feel more connected to that in the city. Like I drive by a park and ride um, in the mornings uh, that had, a, you know, a two-year waiting list to get a um, to get a pass to park there and then take the light rail from the suburbs to downtown, you know, wow. people to work. Um, and when I drive by it now, it's completely empty. I'm talking about like one or two cars. And so you're seeing these things right in front of your face that it's like, oh, you know, if we're going to like keep this city alive, we're going to have to get people to be able to go back to work. And if we're going to do that, we need to be able to do it safely so that we're not having to do these constant shutdowns and restrictions and things like that. Now, if you live out in Grand County, you know, and, you know, keeping your kids home from school isn't that much of a big deal because you're just like working on the farm or whatever yourself and, and all that sort of thing. And you have a different experience than anything the government says for you to do is like being told what to do by someone that you don't think you should have to listen to. Right. And, you know, and I understand that philosophy. I mean, that makes sense to me um, from those perspectives. And, and that's okay to have those like those views based upon your own experience. But the, the, the reality is, is that, you know, when you look at that map that uh, they like to show, like the Trump likes, to, I think he like had it printed out in a, next to him at the White House early after his, early in his administration of like, you know, all the red counties across the country and then all these like just little specks of blue. And so like what a blowout that is. I mean, it's just, it's so dishonest because, you know, there's 500 people that live in this county. And so yes, 200 you know, or, you know, 98% of them voted red, but then you have these cities where 7 million people live in and you even hear them try to minimize these things when they discuss elections in general, like when they're like, well, if you take California out, you know, then what do you have? You know, right. you don't have, um, you know, you, you have a basically a deadlocked election or you, or you, you know, you have Trump winning a popular vote or, you know, they're even trying to do this in like uh, Michigan and be like, well, you take Wayne County out, you know, suburb of, of Detroit, then, uh, then, you know, that's the whole margin right there. Well, it's like, well, nothing works like that. You know, you, you don't just get to like, be, you know, it's not like your, uh, your teacher that throws away the lowest score, you know, so it doesn't weigh down your average at the end of the, the semester when giving a grade. It's like, these are American counties these are american states and they all count you know right. and so your map your map of massive red is misleading it's representing a whole lot of land area not a whole lot of population area and again that's another example of looking at the same sets of data and having wildly different interpretations of them and both sides using them to try to explain why they're right or why the, why they're not wrong 
right. Well, everyone comes at it from their own point of view. And I, I, I think part of this, this podcast today is me admitting that I, I have no idea how to communicate to people who live in that situation because it doesn't share my experience. So I can't communicate to them because I don't know their needs. Their needs are, are probably mostly like we want to support the people in our community. And if you want to communicate to someone, we, we want that too. Then it devolves into, you want to raise my taxes and give it to, you know, people who don't love lazy people on welfare, that sort of thing. Or it, it becomes so polarized that it becomes personal. Um, I would say that uh, um, applies to many of the, the big time issues out here. Um, look, I, you know, uh, this Supreme Court, the 6-3 conservative Supreme Court, it's going to be ruling on a lot of different things that are very important to people who are uh, conservative because they've been counting on the judges being filled uh, to act as a counterweight to what they see as liberal intrusion into their lives, primarily abortion. Then also a big, a big, huge, huge flashpoint for them is Obergfell, which is the ruling on um, gay marriage, which extended into the, 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 the baking of the cake thing that happened in Colorado uh, about three years ago, three, four years ago. Um, and that whole thing all ties together. And it becomes like, this is why we did this. This is why we did this. And what I want to say to these people is like, from my perspective is like, when that is gone, you still have these judges that are incompetent, a lot of them that have been confirmed in the Senate. You still have them ruling on different things. That may not always be to your advantage here. So if they rule a certain way on this, that's the only reason that you were wanting this. That was the only reason, like I told you, you know, single issue voters. That's the only reason. There's, there's a lifetime after that. And people, and I think that maybe I'm guilty of this and uh, people on the liberal, liberal side are, are guilty of this. We, 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 it's hard for us to see past the, the immediate and the, 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 the wall that's in front of us, which is our own point of view. And it's not necessarily a consequences thing. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's more of a um, like, holy crap, once these judges are confirmed um, and they, they do the thing that I want them to do, it may not always be to my advantage for these, these, these judges that we, and like I said, a lot of them are incompetent, to be ruling in this fashion just because we wanted them to rule a certain way on one thing. Well, the, the best example of that is uh, the Obamacare type lawsuits where Obamacare, you know, w- was passed, the ACA was passed in 2010 and, um, you know, became the law of the land and it was wildly unpopular. I mean, Barack Obama basically mortgaged his entire um, legislative agenda in his first term to get that passed when he still had essentially majorities in the Senate and the House. Um, and in order to get that through, opportunities to maybe um, get things done that were less controversial, but it also had been a political like talking point for a generation, you know, I mean, going back to Hillary Clinton as the first lady, making that a priority, you know, what are we going to do about healthcare? And even before that, it was always a big political issue. You still, it's still always like one of the topics in a presidential debate, but um, conservatives knew that if it got passed and if it got implemented, that it would then even some of their supporters would start to benefit from it, and they did, and that is a politically dangerous game, um, and you know that's actually why they started calling it Obamacare was so that they could like pin it to an to a person that they could point to as unpopular. But now we are you know ten years later, and you're seeing a vast group of people in this country that cuts across demographics, that cuts a lot across political philosophies that are benefiting from it, right. and. And many of them may not even know some of the protections that they currently have are as a result of that law being passed, but they are still interested in having the Supreme Court rule against it. And they feel like, oh, if we get this last justice in there and have like an ironclad 6-3 sort of majority, then there's no room for John Roberts moderation or there's no room for any sort of thing to happen where it's not going to go through. But then if it doesn't, 
and then immediately like you're you get dropped from your your insurance company because you have a pre-existing condition or you're trying to send your kids off to college and they're telling you now they can only be on your health insurance until they're 21 or 18 or something you know that affects you personally and that is a manifestation of your political beliefs or you being a part of a machine that manipulates politics in such a way that you know you're a more righteous person because you believe in justices that, that support you know christian values or that you know or or that you know uphold the sanctity of marriage or that you know push back on a, a woman's uh, right to have access to an abortion and those things become so important to you and the problem with that in a in a democracy like ours is that those those values and those powers that are being exerted come from the minority they don't the majority of people in this country are in support of marriage equality the majority of people in this country are in support of um, of not making abortion illegal mm -hmm. uh, and there's nuances in those views but you know the, but the reality is is you've got a u.s senate that 40 percent of the country has voted to um in order to have a majority while 60 percent is sending people to represent them while they're in the minority and then you end up having the same thing in presidential politics where you can lose an election by three million votes and become the president and all those views that you espouse um are that that got you there are only represented by a less than the majority of the country. And then the judiciary is what gets bastardized because of lifetime appointments. And so you end up having, you know, sort of like little micro infighting issues uh, during elections that are sort of um, specific to that time, like, you know, overturning Obamacare or something being a big issue in the last handful of elections. Um, and so then you get people into, put into majority power through minority representation, and then they put people on the judiciary in, in an effort to overturn those views or to cement those views, depending on what they are. And now you've got um, a, a problem for democracy where you have people living under rules that are not representative, not representative of the people that are being ruled and therein lies the anger and then you know you see it with the the left's rage at trump over the last four years and right. and you know and you on the other side it's like i was describing where you know people feel like government should stay out of their business and then you know screw the cities and screw the back east guys and all that and you know we know what's better for our communities and and those things and, and it's like those arguments would have greater weight if those communities were flourishing you know, but they're they're not, and so then they're like economically aggrieved, and they lash out at you know the governing party, which is the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is just sort of a, a pushback on that, and they keep going there. So, you know, it's going to be incumbent upon leaders going forward um, to be able, especially people that are in a in a place where they're a mix of like urban, suburban, and I know they're not calling exurban areas and rural areas, you know, to moderate to a point where you can find some common ground there. And then when those people get into leadership, then they can bring that moderation. And I'm not talking about political moderation, but more like rhetorical moderation, where we're not just putting everyone on blast all the time and then find middle ground, you know? Um, and there's been a lot of examples of how this has happened in the past. And you mentioned earlier, we always think now is the worst time. And I think this recency bias is always important to point out, you know, it's like in the sixties, we had all kinds of unrest, racial unrest, um, political upheaval, and on top of it, assassinations right. and uh, like, you know, military uh, murders of citizens and things like that. We we're not having that right now. You know, we are definitely running hot, but we're boiling over and i think again something i've talked about the early on some of our earlier shows this concept of making politics boring again not having it front and center every day not having just a manufactured scandal all the time in order yeah. to get people more riled up about whatever's going on in in, in their political minds that the heat can come down the cooler heads can prevail that the people that truly want to govern yeah. will be able to do so. And maybe it is that group of senators that are like moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats, they're going to wield all the power no matter what happens in the in, in the ultimate, you know, count of who has control of the Senate. But, you know, if there's a reasonable bill that the Democrats are pushing and they can bring three or four, you know, of the moderate Republicans over and make compromises and make it palatable to them, now we're getting legislation done in the way in which it's intended. You know, so we, we have these opportunities ahead of us. It's not all doomsday, but it is going to take a lowering of the temperature and, you know, sort of a default move into making politics less incendiary on both sides so that, you know, Tucker Carlson can talk on Fox News every night about something that's maybe culturally relevant, but doesn't directly apply to like, 
demonizing individual politicians. Well, and right. then same, you know, same thing with on, you know, yeah. Rachel Maddow that it's like let's have a discussion about poverty, but not about how Mitch McConnell's a piece of shit, you know. And then you end up getting into a space where maybe we have common language again, where we can discuss things that we share and that are important to us. Well, the best segment of television Rachel Maddow ever did was her series on the Flint water crisis all right that was that was something and that was during the obama administration and that that really was something that but once again politics was boring particularly the second half of obama's administration and you want that because i don't want to constantly think about the president and there's been like there's been a couple times in my life where it's happened um bush about 2004 to 2006 until the Democrats took control of, uh, of Congress uh, in 2006, thinking a lot about it, repercussions of the Gulf War, all this stuff. The Bill Clinton impeachment, actually basically all the way through from 94 when the Republicans took over <laughs> Congress to his eventual impeachment in 98, there's this, there's just four years where it's just like, I just need to stop thinking about this all the time, right? But, but usually through most of a president's tenure, because most presidents go through eight years, except for Trump, um, <laughs> uh, they, they will have a period where you just don't have to think about the president. You don't have to know everything that's going on. Regular life happens. You don't have a president who's a complete narcissist who wants all that attention. And I think we can kind of wrap up on this. One of the things about Joe Biden is that you know for a fact that he will try to be out, not constantly in the public eye. Um, you will you will know for a fact that he will let good he will have good people around him who know how to govern. Who he's not constantly firing people. He's not const on Twitter. He won't be on Twitter all the time. All these things I yearn for because, honestly, I have bigger things in my life to think, to think about than thinking constantly about the whims of a narcissistic president. And, I, and I'm just looking so forward only once the pandemic subsides. I'm so looking forward to not having to think about the leadership in this country on a 24-7 basis. Absolutely. I mean, the idea and, and that's, you know, just sort of like circling back to what I was saying earlier, the, the net result of that too is a lot of people that are casually involved in politics will drop out of the daily attention to it. They'll allow them to like focus more on their own lives and make decisions that are more informed by what is in their best interest. And that is in everyone's best interest. And, you know, through the course of our, you know, 45 presidents, you know, there's been some that have been, you know, loud and in people's face and and you know sort of self-driven personality driven um and things like that and there's been those that preferred to work more humbly or more sort of uh, casually behind the scenes there's been some that you know were come from the legislature and would be much happier just like going and negotiating with uh, the congress in order to try to get things done and then right. there's been some that that you know like to you know have the the bully pulpit and those things are fine over the course of time you know and 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 we will move past this Donald Trump era and, and we will be fine and we will hopefully have learned from it. And, you know, in the future, um, you know, as we return to a, a, a calmer, less um, all encompassing sort of type of leadership, um, I think that that will then allow for things to get done. They will allow for deals to be made. They will allow people to not constantly fear of getting primaried or getting called out on Twitter or whatever. Right. I mean, and that's, that's not to say that we shouldn't, you know, be like just horrified at what um, to expect from Donald Trump for the next four years or God forbid he, you know, does indeed follow through on his threat to run again in 2024 and, and continues to be omnipresent. But just think back to all of the elections in your lifetime and think about the day after election day, how your opinion changed about the person that lost, whether they were uh, uh, an incumbent like George H.W. George Bush or whether they were reelected or whether it was an open election. It was like the day after Barack Obama beat John McCain, you no longer elevated John McCain to this guy who could be president. Like right. it, 
occurred to you in your brain, this guy is now a senator from Arizona, you know, and, and famously he went and gave his concession speech, um, I believe the night of the election in, in 2008, and uh, then uh, was brought back home by the Secret Service agents, and he said, all right, you guys can all take off now, you know, this whole thing's over. Yeah. I mean, the veneer goes away, you know, I mean, Donald Trump pulling up to, you know, rallies in his Trump plane is much different than uh, with the back force, the backdrop of Air Force One. And so, you know, that's what always happened. I mean, Hillary Clinton became like virtually irrelevant the day after the election, 2016. Right. You know, she'd pop up from time to time, you know, wrote a book or, you know, advocated for certain things, but, you know, didn't see her spend one second on the campaign trail. She famously took a elections. walk. She famously took a walk in the woods, if I remember correctly. It was a... That is correct. And, it was, uh, yes. With Bill. Exactly. <laughs> yes. You know, and I mean, Mitt Romney, you know, now we look to him as like, you know, some sort of uh, of sage voice in the Senate. And I want voices like that. So I won't uh, dig into my opinions of how he goes about doing that. Yeah, um, right. But, you know, he was on the precipice of being elected president. He was leading in polls four days out. You know, he was like 0.1% up. Everybody, Barack Obama's reelection was not assured going into election day. Um, but, you know, then he just kind of like, went away and that was that and you know yeah he came back as a senator but he had to do it out of utah where he didn't even live and like all these sorts of things and and yes he's a senator now but he's not even one of the powerful senators you know he was on the precipice of being the president so the office brings with it a, a lot of visibility and a lot of uh, sort of just implied power, the optics of power. And if those are used in a responsible way, which I think mostly they have been through like my lifetime by whomever's in power, right. you know, Trump was the exception who used them as a blunt instrument to, uh, you know, rile up his enemies and to bring more people to his side. And I think that that is going to get tamped down. And that is our, our first step. Uh, forward. And I look forward to it. And I think that, um, you know, 2021 with the um, coronavirus vaccine and a general return to normalcy and maybe some sort of government involvement in stimulus and a different tone out of the White House is all going to be for the better, even if we have divided government in the Congress and they're, you know, not getting all these bold plans passed. Um, you know, sometimes that is the healthiest way in which you can move forward in keeping a country like generally politically uh, in, united. Yeah. And I, and I think if, if we're going to kind of move forward as a country, we just need to realize that normal is not having to worry about whatever your president's going to tweet next, right? And we're going to have sure. to retrain our brains to, to, to not expect that anymore. And once we do, things will be like, oh, I remember this. Everyone will relax. And we'll go back to our usual corners then, right? But now, rather than being at loggerheads in the middle, we will just kind of go back to our corners sit down and not have to think about a guy who craves no matter what it is it's attention whether it's negative or positive he wants that attention and joe biden well, is the absolute the absolute opposite of that and the other thing that we're going to get back is shared things that we have in society that are unrelated to politics, right. whether it be movies, whether it be, you know, live music or new albums coming out or whether it be sports or like whatever it is, those things are going to be allowed to kind of rise back up that we can pay attention to. You know, it's like um, this past year has been like so intense because this is the only drama that's playing out at all times because everything has been shut down. You know, right. they're not, movie theaters are closed. Concert venues are not, you know, having shows. Artists are putting off releasing albums or studios releasing movies um, because there is an environment where it can be consumed in the way that we once, once did. Those things coming back will, will fill this vacuum of constant attention to politics and hopefully leave it to the boring aspect again, where, you know, I'm more interested that my team is in the playoffs and three of my coworkers are super fans of them as well, even though our politics are totally different, but now we have something to give high fives about or to talk about on Monday morning, right. you know? And I think that is gonna be like something that's important. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time in my own political um, sort of evaluator life thinking like, what's the next big news story that's gonna hit, that's gonna affect, you know, everything. And sometimes those are massive things. The OJ 
OJ Simpson trial that consume right. everybody or 9-11 or the war in Iraq, or, you know, maybe it's just a massive devastating hurricane or whatever, but it's something that everyone is looking at and that they're getting information from the same sources, from Twitter, from the news media, the mainstream media, from Fox News, from whatever, but it's sort of like fact-based information. It's like, oh, this storm is heading towards this coast at this speed and this could be the damage and these are their risks and these are the things we're doing and this is what the aftermath is going to look like and all those sorts of things they involve government and they involve politics but they're not politics they're not partisan and so getting back to a world where we can view those things and they don't always have to be like tragedies too they can be triumphs you know they could be the cubs winning the world series that all of a sudden everybody loves the cubs even though they don't even know the name of the stadium that they played in for 100 years or whatever those things can percolate up to the surface again we can be excited about them or we can be engaged with them in our common language and i think right. that is what you know all of this that i've said today comes back to is yeah. like learning how to talk to one another again we have a responsibility you know from our side to do it um but we have to be kind of met halfway so that we're both uh, playing by the same rules. We don't have this asymmetrical politi political partisanship that informs everything we think of. Right. Absolutely. And once again, Pat, you got the last word because I Ooh. can't possibly follow that up with anything better. So uh, that is, uh, that is, that is great. So, okay. Well, um, Everyone seems to be enjoying CSU politics so far, um, and this is—it's been great to kind of experience the uh, the positivity here. I thought uh, this was kind of an experiment that uh, Mr. Gary and I um, had. We said, like, well, let's just do this because it's like before it was right before the election. I think it was like the Sunday before the election, so we we decided to kind of try this out and everyone seems to like it. So we'll keep doing it as long as you guys seem to like it. And as long as Pat and I have uh, things to talk about on this thing. All the way up until it gets too boring. That's right. Which then I'll feel like I've achieved everything I've set out to do. Right. All right. It's none of my well, self-interest. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us and we'll be back soon for another episode of CSG Politics. Adios. Cheers. Thanks.